Well, hello, Promises of Daughters of Destiny. I hope everyone is doing well, and I can't wait to get into this uh, episode. We are ready to share on Ruth and Naomi and the grief that they went through. I am also going to talk a little bit about um, some things with the nation. I hope you all will join me. Get your Bible, get your cup of joe, and let's get started. Now, beginning at the book, at the beginning of Book of Ruth, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and their two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Mehalon and and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and went to live in Moab and lived there for about, I guess, a decade. And then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. And after they had lived for about ten years, both Mehalon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living for and uh, set out on the road and would take back the land of Ju- to take them back to the land of Judah. I want to stop right there and talk about Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah and what Ruth must have been feeling with the loss of her two sons and her husband. No grandchildren and No belongings because a woman couldn't have or possess land back then. They were possession of men. And she had to have such a heavy heart when she left Moab with the intention of going to back to the land of Judah. Naomi and Ruth had a special bond. And Orpah only had the connection, but not a bond between her and her mother-in-law. When they started out to travel, Orpah decided to turn around and go back. And Ruth continued. Ruth's heart had to be heavy because she had been traveling with her mother or her mother-in-law, which was like a mother to her. All of those days and nights thinking about the husband that she loved and she lost this man that took her out from a place of being a Moabite priestess a place where she was grooming children to die in a fiery furnace and and teaching them about the ways of evil going from that type of kingdom into a kingdom of godliness and of hope and of a future 
was something that I think Ruth could not imagine. And when she lost her husband, she had to have that feeling of what is going to happen now. Am I going to have to go back? Am I going to turn around and go through all that I've already been through? Or am I going to move forward? And am I going to keep going to, to seek this God that I've come to know and to know his people? So they're traveling with hope that there's something on the other side for them. Ruth had to have so much grief inside of her. And Naomi had to be carrying her own grief. The conversations that they must have had on the road on the way home to to uh, Judah must have been heavy, very weighty if they talked at all. I can imagine her, her and Naomi walking down the road and just saying, what are we doing? How are we going to get through this? We're women. Women don't do these type of things, but we're venturing out to do this. And we're, we're venturing out in our grief in these dark times to, to hold on to something that I don't know if is it's there. I have the faith, but I don't know if it's going to be there on the other side. And Naomi just saying, I've lost everything. I don't have any sons. I have a barren womb. I have no husband. I don't even have land to go back to. What am I going to do? What am I going to do for my daughter-in-law? How am I going to care for her? How am I going to make this right? I have no son to give her. Yet she dares to come with me to, to my home. And then I can imagine just the, the heaviness of their hearts in crying and the bitterness that had to be there because they were turned away from a future that had to have been much brighter than what they were seeing now. So Ruth and Naomi have these issues floating around in their soul and their spirit. They're they're pondering everything that they've already been through. And how many times have we, when we've gone through grief with the loved one that we've lost, or we've gone through grief because of a loss of a job or a loss of a child or a loss of a mate, even if the mate is not dead, divorce is so hard. And those thoughts that Ruth and Naomi had are some of the thoughts that we have when we go through divorce. Nobody wants to go through it, but it's a hard thing. Nobody wants to have a loss of a loved one and become a widow. No one wants to go through the loss of a job or the loss of a child. Those are hard things to go through. And grief is 
part of all of that. It doesn't just embody one thing. Yes, there's the bereavement of a, and then the loss, which is probably the heaviest of all griefs. But there's also the loss of, of things, of hope of a future. When we are walking through life with someone else and that person disappears from our life, whether it's circumstance or whether it's death, that, that shuts everything down and it stops us from moving. We have to, we fall in that place and we can't get up right away. And we have to go through that process. And that's what these podcasts have been about, going through those processes. When I had the first podcast up, I talked about not being able to breathe when I got out of bed in the morning. And just being so hurt and so, so, I felt like a ton of bricks was on my chest. And that I couldn't move because of the loss of a loved one. And of five people, actually. But the DSM-4 talks about persistent depressive disorder. Actually, the DSM-5, I'm sorry. And it, it talks about um, bereavement. And I'm just going to read this out of um, the uh, DSM-5. It says, bereavement is the experience of losing loved one to death. It is generally it generally triggers the grief response that may be intense and may involve many features that overlap with symptoms and characteristics of major depressive episodes such as sadness, difficulty sleeping, and poor concentration. Features that help differentiate a bereavement-related grief response from a major depressive disorder or dis episode include the following. The predominant are, persist are persistent depressed moods and diminished ability to experience pleasure. Moreover, a dysphoric mood of grief is likely to be decreased in intensity over days to weeks and the occurrence comes in waves that tend to be associated with thoughts or reminders of the deceased whereas the depressed mood in the major depressed episode is more persistent and not tied to a specific someone with this past history of a major depressive disorder bereavement may trigger may trigger not only a grief response, but also a development of episodes of depression or worsen, a worsening of an e existing episode. Finally, periods of sadness are inherent aspects of the human experience. These periods should not be diagnosed as major depressive disorder unless the criterias are met with for severity. So I'm not going to go into into that portion of it. But most grief will last for two to, or two to three years. And when I started talking on grief in the beginning, I gave the example of... Um, the a couple of books and I'll go back and name them at the end of the episode but I wanted to just 
talk about bereavement and how it's okay to grieve. You need to give yourself permission to grieve and to cry or to be angry and to get it out of your system. And it does come in waves. And sometimes those waves last for, for decades because they'll stop, you'll get better, you'll be okay for a little while, and then you'll be triggered by something that you remember about a lost loved one. And those things are normal. And you need to allow yourself to feel them. It's okay to feel them. It's okay to talk to God about them. It's okay to be angry with God. And I'm sure that in some point in time, when Naomi goes back home, she talks about, don't call me Naomi anymore, but call me Mara, for I am bitter. Because I went out full and I came back empty. How many of us feel that way? We lose it. We, we lose perspective on who we are, especially who we are in Christ. The enemy will use that to put us to sleep and to keep us in bondage and to not allow us to move forward because we can get stuck in that stage of depression and sadness and darkness. And I talked about compounded grief, and that is part of what happens we get stuck in that place where we in we can't get out of it and you need to go to a doctor or a psychiatrist or a close friend that's going to help you get out of that place so Ruth and Naomi are traveling and they're getting back to the place of uh, Judah and while they're traveling they have all of these thoughts And they go in, and Ruth sees this field, and they're they're harvesting the grain, and she decides to go and harvest the grain. She goes behind those that are cutting the cutting down the grain and and um, in the fields, and she she starts pulling up the 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 leftovers off the ground. And this farmer, who the man who owns the farm, comes and, and she finds favor with him. And he tells his men not to touch her, but to, to leave extras behind for her. And then he finds out that she is one of his relatives' daughter-in-laws. So the story goes that Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. I just want to say to you, Jesus is that kinsman redeemer. Because when we have loss and we're just trying to glean from life and make it through, and we're walking through the daily experiences and we're having time, you know, of trying to get through work or trying to get through taking care of the kids or trying to get through taking care of the husband, taking care of the bills. And we're trying to hold on with all that we have. He gives us that grace 
to make it through. He gives us that love to make it through. Sometimes we don't have the energy or the strength to pray, but he comes alongside of us and girds us. He gives us that hope. He gives us that, that he holds us in his arms and cradles us and tells us it's going to be okay. And that was what I wanted to talk about was these two women went through this experience. Ruth meets Boaz. Boaz goes through the process of becoming the spouse because he's the next, he's the second to next in line. I guess that's correct English. And he, he goes through the process of making him, making his, Ruth his wife. And in that process, Ruth becomes pregnant. And she bears a grandson for Naomi. And Naomi has the ability to nurse and take care of and raise this child. That is the kind of God that we serve. Though we feel barren, though we feel lost, he will come alongside of us and he will raise up another and bring in something new and make us full again. He gives us hope again. He places a new thing in our life to give us hope and a future. One of my favorite um, scriptures is Jeremiah 29, 11, and I know most people know that scripture. It's for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a destiny, a hope, and a future. He gives us a hope and a future. He doesn't take away from us. He doesn't harm us. All he wants to do is love us. He may correct us, but at the end of the day, when we submit to what he wants, and it's not what other people want, it's what he wants. When we do that, he gives us that future. I just want to read you this scripture. Um, it's Psalm 10, verses 14 through 15. But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. I think that that scripture talks about our grief and what the enemy tries to do. And we need to pray for God to break the arm of the wicked one that this scripture was prayed in the heat of a battle. 
And I think that we are in a battle when we are going through grief. We're in a battle for our souls because the enemy wants to keep us stuck and depression wants to wash over us and keep us in a dark place. And I know that it is a dark, dark, dark place for some of you. I know that it is, a, it, even though it's daylight outside, that it seems like the light can't shine sometimes. It doesn't feel like the sun is around you. And I know that we have loved ones who go on to be with the Lord and we're supposed to be happy and joyful and, you know, grateful that they're going to heaven. But you still have a process that you have to walk through in grief. And it may not be as heavy, but it's still there. And then I wanted to recommend, um, there's a couple of books that I, I gave reference to when I first started this. Um, it's one, the newest one that I've read, and it's, this is a really good one. It's um, Grieving Without, well, Grieving With Hope by Samuel J. Hodges the Fourth and Kathy Leonard. This book is a grief share um, book. They have a list of um, different grief groups that you can go through. Um, they're all around the world, I think, or especially in the United States. I have to go back and look at that. And then there's the after grief, finding your way along the long arc of loss, grieving, um, grieving process by Hope Eidelman. And this is just for motherless daughters, but I think everybody can, can learn from some of it. Um, this book is a secular book and the grief with hope is, a is a Christian book and I strongly recommend both of them. There's some things in the secular book that Christians aren't going to want to hear or talk about, but I think that there are things that we need to know and we need to learn. Um, and then the prayer of Jabez is something, um, by Bruce Wilkinson that I think everybody should read because it is just the book of Jabez. His name was not a good name. He, he was named Jabez, which um, was a negative connotation. And he was a man that was after God's heart. And he just prayed for the Lord to bless him and to not let harm come to him. And I think that's something that we need to pray daily for God to do in us and in our families. And then um, there are also, um, C.S. Lewis has a couple of books on grief because he had a wife who had cancer and a stepson. And he talks about what the process that he went through. Um, there are also coping skills that are listed on the, the internet. They have worksheets. They have different books you can, you can find. And I think those will all be helpful to you. So on to the second half of our show. This is a prologue. April 1789, The Invisible Hand, 1 p.m., the Virginian, tall and stately, and ramrod straight, stepped into the onto the crowded second-floor balcony of the Federal Building in Lower Manhattan, and took his place 
beside a large decorative Bible. A thunderous roar erupted from the sea of people on Wall Street, followed by tense silence as everyone strained to hear the man's voice. He would not say much, only two words. Both syllables would shape the ages to come. This man was about to change history. He was about to take the oath of office as the President of the United States of America. General Washington was dressed in modest, double-breasted brown suit with buttons embossed with eagles. A sword dangled at his side. His face was careworn, and the Bible before him, bound in rich brown leather, had hastily been borrowed from the altar in the nearby St. John's Lodge. It rested on a red cushion held by Samuel Otis, Secretary of the Senate, and it was opened to Genesis 49, the passage containing the blessing of Jacob to his twelve sons, who were destined to become great nations. After placing his hands on the Bible, general, the general listened to the oath of office, in which was quoted by Robert Livingston, the Chancellor of New York. After hearing the final words, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, Washington said, I do. And then he did something extraordinary. To the thrill of the crowd, and in full view of posterity, he removed his hand from Genesis 49, then reverently bent down and kissed the Bible. It is done, Livingston cried to the crowd. Long live George Washington, President of the United States. The multitudes burst into cheers, shouting, yelling, weeping, and rejoicing as the father of their nation quietly turned and disappeared into the building to give his inaugural address to the members of Congress. In that speech, Washington said, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they had advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of provincial agency. This propitious smile of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. On that spring day in 1789, hundreds of eyewitnesses saw Washington lay his hands on God's word and kiss its pages. And those who heard his remarks noticed, made notice of the reverence towards God, the God of heaven who has been revealed, his eternal rules of order and right, an unmistakable reference to scripture. The founders of the United States of America revered the Bible because it reflected the awareness of God's authority over the nations. Washington did not place his hand on the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States, as hallowed as those documents are, nor did he kiss the pages of any religious or secular tomb. It, it was the Bible 
that sanctified that moment. The Bible he knew had ushered American history to that point. This was a moment in history that would establish this nation. And with everything that is going on in this nation right now, there have been some remarkable hurdles that we have overcome. And there have been some tremendous walls that have been placed in front of us. This is a nation that was established on its knees by the pilgrims who landed here, on its knees by the people who first established it, revering God. Even Jefferson revered God, and that is in the letters of um, the separation of church and state. We as a nation have so much craziness going on right now. We have lost sight of who really controls the White House. We have lost sight of who we really are. And we need to get back to that place. We need to get back to the place of the religious foundations that this nation was established on. We are not a theistic government. We are a Christian government. We believe in equal rights for every person because the Bible establishes equal rights for every person. The Bible is not a book of slavery. The Bible is a book of dominion and power of God. This nation has been beguiled by man too long. It is not man who takes care of us. It is not man who will continue to take care of us. This is a place that we need to come to and understand again. I think that with what's happened with abortion rights um, and God having that overturned, we've all been praying for that for a long time. I think that we need to, to look at the women who are suffering I just got a thing from Texas Rights for Life yesterday to where they're promoting um, self-abortions again and created a program to help women self-abort. It's, it's horrible. I just signed the petition yesterday. But I think that we also, as a nation, should look to the things that are happening with Trump right now the things that President Biden has brought into place and the things that have happened in the past. I think that God in his sovereignty will direct this nation where he sits fit and that we are to pray for every leader that we do have. And I do not believe that there's a time for President Trump to return to the White House. I do not believe that there's a time for someone who is full of business or or is seeking themselves out and seeking to placate to a certain group of people that we need someone who has strong Christian values. President Trump was supposed to be Osiris, and he was Osiris, in that God used him to bring things to Israel that needed to happen. 
and to bring things in this country and this government that needed to happen and be exposed. But lies and theft and things that are, are occurring right now cannot be denied. And I think that we need as a people to step back and and look at who we're electing. Our lives are on the line right now as Christians. We have Christian ministers who are placating violence. We have Christian ministers who are denying that there's anything wrong. We have Christian ministers who are not doing anything and not even not even wanting to anything to do with politics and it is our job and our duty as christians to direct the path of this country to teach our children and to teach this nation i think what's going on right now is there is judgment but there is also grace with god with President Biden, as far as things could have been way, way worse, and they haven't been so far. But we're getting there, and we need to turn back. We need to seek God and to teach our children and our children's children to seek Him. With the government, as far as the Senate, and outside interference and relationships that we've created with other countries, I think we need to pray a safeguard around our country and around Israel that we need to do more for Ukraine and for the refugees. So this is what I wanted to bring about. If you have any comments, or if you want to, to email, you can email me at um, podd.2021 at gmail.com. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of uh, comments if anybody's listening to this. But I want to know what you think. I want to know what you think about how the refugees are being treated. I want to know what you think about the government as a whole right now. And I want to know... Who's praying? I want to hear those things. And I want to hear about anything to do with the other part of this program and grief. And if you need anything that I can get for you, I will help you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for Daughters in Destiny in Christ. P.O.D.D., I love you. And I will be here next month. I won't wait another six months. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's all that we have for today, you guys. I will see you again next month or within the next couple of weeks. I might do an extra program. I um, love you all. The book that I was reading from earlier is 100 Bible Verses That Made America. Um, Robert J. Morgan. And um, like I said, please email. You can send sound bites if you want to. Um, just answering the question, what do you think about the refugees and how this crisis is being handled? And thank you all. God bless. May you prosper. May the Lord's face shine upon you. 
and may your children's children's prosper. Thanks, P.O.D.D. Thank you.